The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Acts 2, verses 14 through 24, and then 36 through 41. You can follow along in the Bibles under your chairs or also along on the screen. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know certain that God has made him both Lord, sorry, my pencil's in the way, Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This has been the reading of God's Word. All right, so I, Father's Day, and I realize I'm thinking and feeling more like a dad. I've grown into my humor. I've always had dad humor, and now, like, it fits. I've always had a dad bod, and now it fits. And I also kind of, I kind of get cranky about things like dads do, like, uh, you know, um, things are changing. Like, I really hate, I hate that emojis are a thing. I know that's a cranky old man thing to say, but I hate, I I feel they're making us more stupid or stupider or whatever the correct way to say, see, it's already working on me, uh, that, that we... 
we are so lazy now, we can't write the word pizza. We have to like find the picture and send it to each other because we're afraid we can't follow along with what we're writing down. I'm very concerned about the growth of emojis and this whole thing. I hate that that's a thing. I hate that, I hate that like wearing this long black socks is now a thing. I hate that that's a thing. It's, but it is. You're very fashionable guy sitting on the front row, but that's, that's a fact. I, I hate that wearing long black socks, that's okay, but the long, wearing the long black socks with the, with the, with the, uh, the sandals, like the Adidas or Nike sandals, like I hate that that's a thing. That just drives me crazy. I'm an old man. I'm okay. Well, I'm not old. I'm getting ready to be 40, but I'm a dad now. And so I can start like really thinking and being very vocal about these things and just letting, let's letting, bringing you guys into my own crankiness. But this world is getting more and more complicated. Do you sense that? Or is that just like an old dad thing for me? Like the, the world is getting more and more, at least it seems to me, more and more complicated and more and more confusing. There are literally, at any given time, a million voices bombarding upon our eyes and our ears, telling us this is the most important thing that you need to think about right now. It might be somebody who's making a big political point, or it might just be somebody saying, hey, this cute viral video is the most important thing in the world right now, and you need to see this. You need to pay attention to this. We are so connected because of the internet, because of our phones, because of social media. We are so connected to so many more voices than we used to have to listen to telling us this is the most important thing in life and you need to pay attention to this. And it gets very confusing, at least it does to me. Does it get confusing to you? So many things, so many people saying this is the most important thing. This is the answer to all of your problems. And the problem is there's a million different voices bombarding on us at any given time telling us this is the answer and they all have a different answer. But here's the one common element that lies below all those million different voices that are bombarding us at any given moment. The, the, the common denominator behind and underneath all of those is the idea that there is a problem that we need an answer to. There's this sense that we have as human beings that there's a problem or problems. And if we could just find the answer to the problem or the problems, then we could, we could finally find peace and rest and joy. We could finally find the answer to what we are looking for. But honestly, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, Sometimes church can feel like it's a million miles away from the big questions that we're dealing with in society and finding out the answers to those questions. The questions that you and I are dealing with every day in our, in our life, that we're dealing with as a society, racial tensions, just, we just had a verdict come in this weekend. Are you on the cop side or are you on the other side? Or can you be on both? Economic questions, philosophical questions, political questions. We are more divided than we ever have been before. And church can feel a million miles away from that. And sometimes that's welcome, right? Like sometimes you just want to go to a place and unplug and unwind and not think about 
all those things for a minute. It's the same reason why you millennials like to watch Bob Ross, the, the painter with the big afro. In my day, when he originally came on PBS, we called him boring. But you like him because you're surrounded by so many different voices, you can just watch that for 30 minutes and not have to think about anything. And church can sometimes feel like it's a million miles away from the answer to the big questions that we have. But the truth is that Christianity is the answer to the the problem and the problems that we have, not just personally, but as a society and as a world. It's interesting, from this very moment, from this passage that Madeline read for us this morning, from this very first interaction that Christianity has with those outside Christianity, it builds itself as nothing less than the answer to all the world's problems. And the thing is that we see in history is that from this moment, from this first day that the church is born or reborn, the Christian church, it comes into being. The Spirit falls upon the disciples and the apostles and they begin to speak in tongues, they go out to the streets and Peter preaches this sermon. From this moment forward, there is an energy released upon the world that the world had never seen before. The, the Romans would spend decades and decades talking about and trying to figure out what is going on. The, we have all kinds of letters written by actual Roman emperors and other thought leaders in the Roman, uh, the Roman society today saying, why is Christianity taking over our empire? Why is it taking over the world? And there were three things that they said that, that was going on that caused Christianity to sweep, to, to grow from being a group of 120 people sitting up in the upper room, hiding away on this Pentecost morning, to not very long after that, sweeping the whole world, they said that three things happened. They said Christians lived better than everybody else. Christians died better than everybody else. And Christians cared more than everybody else. It released an energy from this moment that we see, from this seminal point, a, a group of people at the very beginning, a very small, but would explode. We see it explode on this very day to, from 120 to 3,000, and it continues to explode in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, and goes to the uttermost parts of the Roman Empire and beyond. An energy like the world had never seen before that changed the world. Christianity did change the world. It can change the world. And it is changing the world. We see here in this first sermon that Peter preaches, we're going to see three things that Peter says. He says, this is the answer that we've been waiting for, number one. Number two, he says, the answer, this answer is a surprising offer. And thirdly, this answer offers real and lasting change. This is the answer we've been waiting for. This answer is a surprising offer, and this answer offers real and lasting change. Now, let's get the context of what's going on here, because it's very important to understand this change that happens and occurs at this very moment. So Jesus was a locally famous man in the region of Judea. He was locally famous. He was not a big deal on the world stage. He was locally famous. He had a small but dedicated group of followers. And he was teaching and doing miracles and causing a huge stir in this region. 
And then some, as he goes to Jerusalem, the, the leaders of the day, they plot against him and they see that he is tried as a traitor and he is crucified on the cross and he is buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, Jesus, up to this point, has done, has, like I said, he is locally famous. He's done some amazing things. But really, what he has done is not set himself up for us. If we were trying to, to plan a, a, a world-changing movement, he has not set himself up for certain success. He's left behind a motley group of peasant followers who don't contain any real influence or power. His core group of people, a group of 12 men, are, are men who are not high on the character uh, level. They are not very well educated, and they're not really, you know, like, they don't really have it all together. It's not the cream of the crop that he's picked to represent him. But, and this is where the plot starts to change, on the third day after he was crucified, he is resurrected and he spends a, a 40 days appearing to his disciples and his leaders, his followers, after he is resurrected. And then he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. I want you guys to take this message that, that I have died on behalf of your sins and I have risen again. I want you to take this message into all the world and preach it to everyone to the ends of the world. Now I'm leaving and I'm leaving you 12. It's still this 12 motley group of guys that are the leaders and 120 kind of misfits that he's leaving in charge. And he leaves and ascends to heaven. And he tells them, but here's what I want you to do. Here's one command I have for you before you go into all the world. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise that's coming from the Father, the power from on high, the baptism or the filling or regeneration in the Holy Spirit. So they go there and they wait for about 10 days. And this, now we're up to the morning, Pentecost morning, which is the, where this sermon occurs. And they're waiting in there. We covered it last week. They're praying together in one accord, the 11 apostles and the 120 people all together. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them in a way that he had never has fallen upon them before, fallen upon humankind before. He comes and he dwells with man. He unites himself with his believers. They become one together with God. He baptizes them and fills them with his Holy Spirit. And they begin, there's the, the wind that fills the room, there's the fire that appears and sets on their head, they begin to speak in other tongues, then they go out into the streets and they're proclaiming, it says, the glories of God in tongues or in languages that they do not understand. Now, meanwhile, there are in the city of Jerusalem, from all over the area, from all over the greater region, men and women, Jews who speak all kinds of languages from their native areas, and they are here to celebrate this great festival in Jerusalem. So they're gathered in Jerusalem for this big party, this kind of like a, a big, big gathering where they've all come in. And when they hear these men and women loudly walking through the streets, proclaiming the glories of God in tongues that they do not understand, they hear them speaking in their own languages, telling of the glories of God. And so a crowd gathers. It's probably in the, the, outer, the outer court of the temple. A crowd gathers. Because that's where you would gather to hear uh, new news that's going on. That's where somebody, if somebody wanted to address a crowd, that's where they would go and they would gather there. So they probably have all kind of convened now upon the outer court of the temple. And they don't know what's going on. 
There are men and women who are speaking in languages that they can tell they're not from where I come from, and yet they're speaking my language, and they're telling of the glories and wonders of God. What is going on here? Last, the, last week we said that they were perplexed, and they were amazed and astonished at what was going on. So now we pick up in our verse, in verse 14, if you have your Bible, chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, but Peter so they were amazed and they said, in verse 13, we'll actually say, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They're saying, hey, these people are some drunk people. They've been up partying, they're drunk. And Peter stood up with the 11. He lifted up his voice and addressed them. That's all the people, all the crowd is gathered wondering what in the world is going on. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. He said, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. Which, I mean, he's not, he didn't grow up where I grew up and come from my family. That doesn't, I don't think that, I mean, I don't think it excludes it, but it, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek answer he gives them. Verse 16, but, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now this is a very big deal as he's standing up because all these people, all these Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem were waiting, waiting, waiting for an answer to their problems. As a Jewish people, they were scattered throughout the world. The Jewish nation itself was under the control of the Roman Empire. They were an oppressed and uh, conquered people when God had said, you will be my people who I'll show my glory to all nations through. And they've been waiting for God to come and answer their problems, to come and bring an answer to their problems. They've been waiting for this. And now Peter stands up and says, this is the answer to your problem. They would have heard that immediately when he quotes, this is what, this is, this that you're seeing right now is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel prophesied in, in Joel chapter two. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. See, that is the great problem that we have as people. The great problem that we have as people is we are left to our own devices. We're each of us going our own way, doing our own thing, doing what we think is most important, approaching life the way that we think it needs to be approached, dealing with the people around me the way I think they need to be dealt with, dealing with life the way I want it to be done, and put a bunch of us in a room doing that, and you have madness. You have the world, you have the society that we live in. The problem is that we were made by God and we were made for God. And when we are separated from him, we are restless until we find the rest that we were made to find in him. Your restlessness, your personal restlessness, where you are looking and searching for the answer to your problems, is because you are untethered from the one by whom you're created and for whom you're created. And until you are united to him and you are left to your own devices, you will continually be going around and around in a circle chasing your tail, thinking that you found the answer to your problem, 
But just like, just like my old dog that used to actually catch his tail, whenever he finally catch it, he would discover that is not what I was trying to catch. And that's what happens with us in life when we finally catch what it is that we're chasing. We realize that's a dead-end street. And what God had prophesied through the prophet Joel back in chapter two of Joel was in this last day, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and I will reunite God with man. In all of your restlessness and all of your running away from me in all of your lawlessness, in all of your sinfulness, in all of your rejection, and in all of your rebellion, I will take care of that. I will bring down the separating wall between me and you, and I will pour out my spirit upon you. You may not know it, but that, that is what you've been longing for. This is the answer to your problems, is what Peter is really proclaiming. And the truth is that you and I, we've been waiting for an answer to our problems. And the problem is that the, the problem is that we misdiagnose our problems. Have you ever woken up with some sort of like a issue going on, like an ache in a particular area or a rash that looked kind of nasty and you don't want to ask anybody about it? So what's the first thing you do? You go to WebMD or whatever, right? And you look it up. And you find out that you have cancer. That's always the first thing that you find out. I have cancer or I have tuberculosis. And I probably have about two weeks to live. That's, that's what this thing is saying. I'm about to die. And come to find out it's poison ivy. We misdiagnose our little problems like that. You're not a medical doctor. Well, some of you are. But most of us in here are not medical doctors. And we are not equipped or trained to diagnose our rashes, and our aches. And you and I are not God. And we are not equipped to diagnose our real problems. But we are constantly, constantly, constantly trying to convince ourselves that what we think the real problem is, the problem is I don't have a wife. The problem is I don't have a husband. The problem is I don't make enough money. The problem is those Republicans. The problem is those Democrats. The problem is the president. The problem is, the problem is Congress. The problem is the media. The problem is those, uh, those nasty Muslims. The problem is those people of another color. The problem are the cops. The, problem, the, the problems are all these different things, but the problem that we find out is true problem goes deeper and in a place that we don't want it to go. The problem, Peter stands up and declares that the answer to the problems has come. And it came, though, in a way that they could not have dreamed of. You know why? Because it was a way that was repulsive to them. As he stands up and he declares this is what the prophet Joel said in verse 21. It shall come to, come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's saying, you guys, you, it's only been 50 days. You saw him or you heard about Jesus. He came and he did all these miracles. He healed the sick. He cared for the poor. He raised the dead. 
And then you probably have already heard the rumor that he has risen from the dead. As you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about that. Think of the who Peter is talking to and what he's saying. He is literally saying that a number of the people in the crowd, not everybody in the crowd, we'll get to that in a second, but a number of the people in the crowd, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem, had given up Jesus to be unrighteously offered or murdered on the cross because he did not deserve it. And he's saying, you yourselves did it. Think of how repulsive that it would have been to them to hear that. Number one, to hear it's repulsive to us when we hear, here's the problem, you're a sinner, and God's wrath is against you as a sinner. That's a repulsive thought. You're a sinner, and God's wrath is against you. You are by nature and by choice a sinner, a rebel against, the, against God. You are a, a rebel, and so there needs to be a sacrifice to take what is rightfully owing to you, the wrath of God, to divert it away from you if you were to have any hope of salvation. That's repulsive. And then to hear, on top of that, this Jesus, who is the one that God sent by the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus who God sent, you went and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. It was repulsive, doubly repulsive to them. It was foolishness to them that to then hear, verse 24, God raised him up. This man who died that you turned over, that, that you have blood on your hands and you have blood guilt upon you, God then turned around after he was dead. On the third day, he raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was repulsive to them and it was foolishness to them. And it's still repulsive to every single one of us in this room and foolishness to every single person in this room by nature. Yet, at this moment, they are forced, they are forced to look at what Peter is saying. At this moment, they are forced to face it. Now, you and I, we really will do anything we possibly can not to face the fact that we are sinners against God and by nature and by choice, children of wrath. We will do anything not to think about that. We will subscribe to Netflix. We will watch countless cat videos on Facebook. We will scroll on Facebook or acknowledging that this is boring, but we will sit there and scroll for Minutes and hours at a time, if you add it up. Twitter and Instagram. 
We will binge watch TV shows and movies. We will fill our, our ears with music all the time. All the time we will have some sort of media feeding into our ears and into our eyes if possible. And what we're really trying to do, we're trying to entertain ourselves to an extent that we don't have to think about the great yawning emptiness at the core of our soul, which is there because by nature and by choice, we are children of wrath against God. Yet at this moment, they didn't want to hear it any more than you and I wanted to hear. But at this moment, these people have to sit and st- or stand and pay attention what what Peter is saying. First of all, because they have the witness of the apostles standing there saying, you have seen, you saw Jesus in your midst and we saw him do these miraculous signs. It is historical fact. We saw him. You were there. He was killed. He was pierced after he was dead. He was put into a tomb. We saw him on the third day risen again and he appeared to us for 40 days afterwards. We saw it. It is historical fact. It is not a fable. It is not something made up. This is not something that happened in a corner somewhere. This has been out in the open the whole time. Everybody that is standing here in this temple court can attest to that. Or if you weren't there, you can ask somebody who was. And we still have that witness of the apostles handed to us today. The truth that 500 people at one time saw Jesus appear after he was resurrected. One or two people can make up a lie and kind of pass it down, but 500 people don't make up the same lie all at one time. They had the witness of the apostles saying this factually occurred. This is historical fact. And then, and then you see Peter reference the predictions of the prophets. He says, for verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. This means this would have meant more to the Jews than it does to us at this moment, but, uh, or to you perhaps. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting a psalm there, but what he's saying is, Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath with, with him, uh, to, sorry, an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He begins to reference one of the many prophecies we have in the Old Testament, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came along, pre- prophesying that Jesus would come and prophesying that he would be killed and prophesying that he'd be raised again and he'd be seated at the right hand of the Father. We have the witness of the apostles. Then he says we have the, the predictions of the prophets who said he would come and Jesus not, checks every box of all these predictions the prophets had. They had to pay attention. They didn't want to hear. This, this message was a, an offensive message. It was a repulsive message. The idea that he was risen again was a foolish message to them, but yet they have to hear these apostles, these leaders, these 500 people actually are saying they have seen him do these things. They saw him raise again. He is referencing the prophets, which we respect, saying that the prophets were prophesying about this Jesus. And then lastly, they were forced to face it at this moment because there was the proof of the Spirit. 
That was the proof of the Spirit. Verse 33, being therefore exalted the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and are hearing. They they heard the witness of the apostles. They they saw the predictions of the prophets, but they also saw the proof of of the Holy Spirit. You know, the first thing they saw with the proof of the Spirit was they saw the changed lives of these apostles, this one who's preaching to them in particular, who just a few weeks before, when the chips were down and his master who he'd followed, he said, I will, I will give my life for you. He denied him three times when the chips were down in one night. They would have known that. They would have known they hadn't seen anything with the apostles since Jesus had, had died. They'd been hiding in an upper room These apostles who had kind of scattered, the 120 who were there who weren't, who had seemed to be missing when Jesus needed them most to be around, and things have been quiet, it's been crickets since Jesus died. Plus, in this room, in this upper room, and now speaking in tongues and that they do not understand, and in the, the temple attesting the truth of what's going on, is Jesus' own family, his mother and his brothers are there. His mother and his brothers are there attesting the fact that we thought he was crazy months before this, but now we say this is the Son of God who has come to save the world. They saw the changed lives. They saw these apostles have been hiding who are now bold. They see a a change in Peter who once was uh, denying Christ and now he's standing up boldly proclaiming eye to eye with the people who turned him over, a crowd of people who could have turned on him at any given point and stoned him and put him away, boldly declaring to them that this is true. And they see his mother and brothers saying there, yes, This is true, this Jesus who was my son, this Jesus who was my brother, he is God incarnate who came, died, buried, and is resurrected and now at the right hand of the Father and he has poured out his spirit upon us and is united to us to him by this baptism of the Holy Spirit. They saw the changed life of the disciples and the family of Jesus, but they saw, they got a sense of the taste of the, of the truth upon their own hearts, upon their own tongues. And they, they were standing there, and as Peter was preaching, as he was speaking, they, you see at the, the cheetah head, and they say, what must, what must we do? Something had changed in them. They, all the truth that who Jesus was and what he did was already out there for them to see and to hear. They probably knew all these facts. But yet at this moment, as Peter is preaching, something happens. And they get a sense, they get a, a taste upon their souls, a, a, a taste upon their tongues. They, for some reason that they don't know, inexplicably, they know that what Peter is saying is true. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. Where for years and years, and where you heard about Jesus, it didn't really affect you, it didn't really touch you, it didn't really change you. You heard about it and you disbelieved it, or you thought it's okay for some people to believe, or you say, maybe I believe it casually, but it doesn't have any effect upon me. But one day, one moment, you hear it, and the truth cut you to your heart. It cut below your 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 logic, it cut below your, uh, your problems, it cut below your repulsion, it cut below your idea that it was foolishness, and all of a sudden you knew this is true. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working upon your heart. 
It's that, it's that difference that makes the change from somebody who simply believes with their mind the idea of who Jesus was and what he did and someone who's a Christian. When I feel and I sense and I taste it in my core of who I am, this is the answer that we've all been waiting for. But, it's also, but the answer was a surprising offer. It's surprising because of who is offering this to them. This is the Jesus who they killed. The Jesus who they killed, who they turned over to the authorities unrighteously, unrightly. This Jesus is the one who is turning around and offering them salvation. That death that you turned me over for, that in that very moment, in that death, I was paying for the penalty of you turning me over. And now in unimaginable grace, he's offering back to them salvation. Free of cost and regardless of what they have earning, what they have earned, what is coming to them. That's grace. Have you ever tasted that grace and experienced that grace? Have you considered this Jesus? Look, you and I, we weren't there calling for him to be crucified. But every waking breath of our life from the moment that we first drew breath, the more and more we gain consciousness, the more and more we gain understanding, the, more, the older and older we got, the more and more we were determined to go our own way and do our own thing and ignore his lordship over us, ignore the idea that he, was, that he created us, to ignore all the, our devotion that we owed to him. We weren't there in the street yelling, crucify him. But we turned him over. This Jesus died because you and I were sinners. And it's surprising for that Jesus, that God who we've wronged, to then turn around and offer us salvation free of charge. It's surprising in who's offering and it's surprising in the manner that it's being offered. Totally without cost. Total grace. Peter's speaking to the crowd, part of which had turned him over to be crucified. And when they say, what must we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is repent and be baptized. You'll receive forgiveness for all of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's surprising in who's offering, it's surprising in the manner that it's being offered and who it's being offered to. And when they heard this, when they heard this message, it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That's the first thing that happens when we become a believer. We are cut to the heart. It's totally different than trying to be a better person. 
It's totally different than discovering that uh, I have some problems. I have some things I need to clean up. I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I recognize that. When you're cut to the heart, it's when you see and you feel in the very core of your soul the fact and the truth that you have wronged God personally. And yet he has turned around and offered free grace to you. When the story of Peter becomes your story, Peter who had been so close to, to Jesus, he said, I'll never deny you. After he denied him the third time, says the rooster crowed and Jesus looked at him. And he looked in his eye and he realized what he had done. Being cut to the heart is when it moves from the, from the, the idea that God is off somewhere and I owe him and I need to do better to the idea that when you see Jesus who has given himself for you graciously and you understand I had a part to play in that. It's when by the spirit you see it and you feel it. The answer is what we've been waiting for. The answer is a surprising offer and very quickly, but most importantly perhaps, this answer offers real and lasting change. The first hope that it gives us is that the, the truth that we can change. Once you realize that you are the problem, when I realize that I am the problem, my own rebellion against God is the problem, when I realize that and I sense that and I feel that and I'm cut to the heart by that, then it demands a change of allegiance. It demands a change of affiliation. It demands me, this is what happens when he says that you must repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. They would have been saying, I recognize, I, I am hum I'm humbling myself under Jesus Jesus Christ, I'm saying that he is Lord and I am not. I'm changing my affiliation from following my own way or following whatever way I'd, I, I feel to be right. I'm changing my affiliation, my allegiance to him, what he says is right. It can change us and it offers to us a clean conscience. Look at that. I, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, no more self-cleansing, no more self-justifying, no more self-assuring. Think of all the energy and effort you and I expend in trying to self-cleanse ourselves, self-justify ourselves, and self-assure ourselves. We do that in a million different ways. We can do it in our behavior, thinking I'm better than other people. We can do it in our career, thinking I'm better than other people. I'm constantly trying to justify myself. I'm trying, constantly trying to, to self-cleanse, to self-justify, to self-assure myself that everything is okay. But whenever I, I recognize that my wrong, the problem is that way I've wronged God, that Jesus has offered to me forgiveness by his blood, by his sacrifice on my behalf and total grace for me, then I can have a clean conscience and I no longer have to self-justify or self-assure myself. No more self-cleansing. And when he said, 
You'll receive forgiveness and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us that he's offering us a real power to change. A real power to change. So here's where this leads us this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, I pray that our concept of what Christianity is and what it means to be a Christian would be challenged by this this morning. Christianity offers the change the world is looking for. It can change the whole entire world, and it begins and it happens as it changes each and every person. It gives us the ability to have a clean conscience and the power to actually change in our lives. That's the power that was released on this day that went ahead and changed the entire known world at the time, the whole Roman Empire, with the people who lived well and died well and cared more. That's where the power for it comes from. And this morning, if you're here and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you thought you were, maybe you've given mental assent, but you recognize I've never had that effect in my heart where I am changed, where I've been cut to the heart and I've experienced the filling. The, the, when it says the filling or baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's talking about the new birth regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we find that we are the problem, or more specifically, when I find out that I'm the problem, then we see in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his gift of his Holy Spirit to us, the power to actually change and the hope for change for us and for the rest of the world. Let's believe that. Let's follow that. Let's share that as God's people. Let's pray. Well, this morning... you would help us to rejoice in the fact that the change that we are longing for, the change that the world is longing for, is found in the truth of Christianity, of who Jesus was and what he did on our behalf, and that to repent and believe in him leads us to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which gives us the power to actually change. Father, would you help us, Christians, to live like a changed people underneath the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you help us to share the good news of that change to those around us? For every person in this room, Father, who has not experienced that, I pray that they would be cut to the heart and they would find the joy that comes from forgiveness of their sins and a filling of the Holy Spirit, and of being united to you, the one who they're created for. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School.
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.